Hi, man. I get to join you this morning to finish out our, at least, spring semester on Amen Bible Study through Matthew. We'll pick up again in the fall with the fourth of five major discourses of Jesus as it, we find it in Matthew 18. Uh, but the five discourses, we've already seen three of them. And as we're leading up to this fourth one, we're talking about the subjects of the kingdom of God. Those of us who live under the royal rule and are glad for doing it, we're amazed that we, by grace, could be uh, given entry into this kingdom. Uh, the last of the narrative sections then that leads up to the fourth discourse occurs in Matthew chapter 17, verses 14 through 27. That's what we're going to look at uh, today. And just by way of preparing you for that, I wonder if you've ever been challenged by someone else or maybe even yourself. Do you have enough faith? Do you have enough faith? Do you not believe that God can heal you? Do you not believe that God can give you money to get you out of your financial dis difficulty? Do you not believe that God can bring back your wandering child or grandchild? Or do you not believe? And so someone's put the pressure on that you just don't have enough faith. Well, the parts uh, that we look at of uh, chapter 17 today are all about that faith. And as we question our faith, we find, in fact, that there are three questions here that come up in res with respect to faith that perhaps will reveal to us that our problem isn't having more faith. It's our problem is that we have poor faith. So let's look then at Matthew chapter 17, verses 14 to 27, and see what we can learn after questioning faith. This is the word of God found in Matthew 17. And when they, that would be Jesus, Peter, James, and John, who had been on the mountain of transfiguration, came to the crowd, a man came up to him and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and he suffers terribly, for often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples, and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, O oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? He said to them, Because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. This is the Word of God, the first of three sections I want to look at in Matthew chapter 17. Let's pray. Father, would you please stir our hearts to want to understand this passage and to want to apply it? Open our eyes, our ears, and our hearts. We pray for Jesus' sake and in his name. Amen. This first of three sections in Matthew um, 17, verses 14 to 21, we're going to look at now, um, congeal, these, these uh, verses congeal around the question, why could we not cast it out? You know, the, the non-disciples left behind are kind of wondering, what a bummer. Why could we not cast it out? And so I want us to look at the context for their question, and then we'll look at the content of the question itself and the answer, and then we'll look at the contact where we make with real life between this text from long ago and our lives for right here and now. All right, looking at the context then, um, 
First, we've got Jesus and three disciples, Peter, James, and John. They've been up on a mountaintop. You know, wouldn't we all like to live our lives on a mountaintop, seeing the glory of God displayed in Jesus coming in his kingdom at the end of chapter 16? Some of you standing here will not taste death until you see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And then the transfiguration is the answer to that. They do see the glorious coming of the kingdom in Jesus on that mountaintop, but it was just three of them, with Jesus to see that. Well, now they come down from the mountaintop, down to the valley, and things have just not been so nifty kino cool down in the valley as they were up on that mountaintop. No, down here we're dealing with the real world. We're dealing with, according to another synoptic account, with the scribes who are here arguing with us. Um, we're dealing with this desperate man who's asking us to cast a demon out of his son, and we don't know how to do that. It's not working. The demon's not coming out. We don't know what to do. Oh, Jesus, thank you for coming back. Ever feel like that? Jesus, thank you for coming back. Why did you leave me? Well, he'll never leave us or, nor forsake us. And he hasn't left us, but he does test us. He strengthens us. He tries to show us that we need to grow. And he tries to show these nine disciples who were left in the valley, uh, you need to grow in your faith. All right, so we have Jesus and three disciples coming down and finding a man and three things. A man out of that crowd came to him, knelt before him, not to worship him, but just in humble entreaty and desperation, and said. So there we have it. What did he say? Lord, have mercy on my son. And so we have a boy and three reasons why Jesus ought to have mercy on him. The father says, because he's an epileptic, because he is suffering greatly, and because I've already tried your disciples and they couldn't do it. So you've got to have mercy, Lord Jesus. Well, then we see Jesus and three replies. He answers the father, he rebukes the demon, and he heals the boy. First, he answers the father. And, and it's not just to the father. He's speaking to a whole generation, as he says. Oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. So he says to that father, um, you're part of a generation that just is weak in faith, that doesn't believe. You've got a perverted faith. You've got, uh, a, you're a faithless generation. And it's not just to that man that he's pointing. It's to a lot of that crowd. And how long will you see my miracles and not trust me, not believe me? It must have been discouraging to Jesus. It must have been discouraging to him that his disciples had not been able to heal um, this um, poor child that was suffering from epilepsy, according to this uh, verse. The epilepsy is mentioned twice in Matthew, the other time being in Matthew chapter 4. And we come back there and we find epilepsy mentioned as one of many diseases, um, all of which Jesus was healing. The end of chapter 4, that's the picture that we have of um, Jesus who has announced that the kingdom of God is at hand, and he shows that he means that by uh, healing all kinds of people. And so Jesus is going throughout Galilee and he is healing every disease and every affliction. His fame spread throughout Syria, and they brought to him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them, healed them all. So um, epilepsy was known. It wasn't called epilepsy. The Greek is more like moonstruck disease. I mean, you're moonstruck. You're a lunatic. And there's something they don't understand all of the uh, whys and the wherefores of those who uh, become rigid, jaws are clenched, they foam at the mouth, and they have convulsions. Uh, they don't understand all of that. But our translation would be uh, an epileptic. 
So Jesus uh, answers the father, um, and then he rebukes the demon. Whoa, whoa, the demon? What, we're talking about epilepsy here. Where did demon all of a sudden come into it? Well, Matthew, yes, begins with epilepsy, but then he extends to there's a demon behind it. And Jesus, recognizing that, speaks to the demon and uh, rebukes it, tells him to come out. And the, de the demon has to come out straight away. Now, Mark has a longer um, account of this episode. Matthew compresses it for his purposes. They're not contradicting one another. They complement one another. But um, just no, no embellishment in Matthew. Jesus rebukes the demon, and the demon comes out. And then he heals the boy. Immediately, the demons are gone, and the boy is back and better. Uh, the boy is able to, um, to stand up again. The boy is, is okay. And uh, that's great news. All right, so then um, the question. Well, the question is, why could we not cast it out? That's what the disciples want to know. Why could we not cast it out? And the answer is poor faith. You have a poor faith. It's not, although it looks like it, oh, you have little faith. It's talking about you don't have enough faith. But Let's look at that a little bit more closely, and you'll recognize it's not talking about the quantity of the faith. Jesus is talking about the quality of your faith. Oh, you of little faith. It is because of your little faith. And Jesus often says to his disciples, you have little faith. But when he's saying that, he's not saying it's too small. He's saying it's too poor. It doesn't have, it's a poverty of faith. It's a defective faith, lacking in quality, not quantity. And the reason I stress that is because of his answer. He says, oh, you of little faith, I truly say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you'll say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible to you. It's not the, the size of your faith that matters. It's the sincerity of your faith, the reality of your faith that matters. A little bit of faith in a solid object will hold up. A little bit of faith in a thick sheet of ice and you'll get across that pond in the winter just fine and skate on it. But a lot of faith in a weak object will get you wet. You try to skate on that same pond after a, a late March freeze and it's only just a little bit and you go right through it. No, it's not the quantity. It's the quality of your faith. And then one other thing about this answer of poor faith. In Luke chapter 17, 5 and 6, um, the disciples had come to him and said, increase our faith. And Jesus said, don't need to increase it. If you've got faith as, an, as a mustard seed, um, that'll be sufficient. Just a tiny little bit of faith is all that you need. Well, um, the, uh, verse 21 is a little bit interesting that I guess I have to deal with as well. Uh, read verse 21 for me just real quickly. Uh, you don't see it, do you, immediately, or some of you don't. Depends on what translation you're using, but if you're using the ESV that we often use at second, um, you'll find that it's only in a footnote. It says, some manuscripts insert verse 21, but this kind never comes out except by prayer and fasting. Oh, so there's more that we could, oh, this kind, like there's a special kind of demon, and this kind requires prayer and fasting in order to get them out. But that's not the, the, the message that Matthew gives in the best manuscripts. He says, your problem is a defective faith or a poor faith. Well, Mark actually does say this kind only comes out by prayer. But those are not contradictory answers. 
prayer is required, faith is required for prayer. In James chapter 5, it is the, um, the prayer of, uh, of faith that will raise the sick, the prayer of faith. A prayer that's mechanical without faith won't do it. A prayer that's magical without faith won't do it. A magical incantation that maybe the apostles were trying because they had been given the authority to cast out demons back in Matthew chapter 10, 1 and 10, 8, but it wasn't working. Well, why wasn't it working? They thought it was magic. They thought they'd been conferred on this at one point and that's all they needed. No, it's not a once and for all deal. It's your relationship with God that casts out demons and heals diseases, you apostles in the first century. Not, we don't have that ability today, but they did then, and, and it showed that they were, in fact, Jesus' true spokespeople. Well, um, you've got that authority, but it's not in you. It's in God, and so you need to pray to him and ask him to do it. He is the one. You're just, you're just providing the faith and providing the conduit to heal, to cast out the demons. Well, um, so I think we need to add this part to how could our faith be defective. It, it's defective in sincerity, not in severity. The manuscripts that have this prayer and fasting and all of this extra severity of ascetic activity that we ought to do, that somehow that would merit God's attention, um, that comes later. That's not um, indigenous or native to the gospel. It's added on later, and then it becomes copied more and more and more, and so many manuscripts um, add the additional verses, but they're not in the best manuscripts, in the most original manuscripts. They weren't part of the Apostle Matthew's original text. And we need to beware of those who would add to Scripture uh, extra rules, extra ways that we can show more faith. If you just had greater faith, you'd be healed. If you just had greater faith, you'd have prosperity. If you just had greater faith, no. A simple faith in the promises of God is all that's required. Just a little bit. A mustard seed of faith is all that's required. So don't go with a severe faith and think you can work your way to twist God's arm to do that which he's not going to do. No, you need to be confident and resting in God's arms to do that which he has promised to do, and you're throwing your whole weight on him and trusting him to do it. All right, so what's the uh, contact with our real lives of this first question? Let me give you three possibilities. First, investigate. In investigate. We need to investigate in... Um, in our doubts. What is it that's causing me not to have a sincere faith that's not a real faith? Why, where, why can't I exercise that real faith? I need to investigate the roots of it. If there are questions that are keeping me from trusting the Bible, trusting those promises, trusting in God, trusting the character of God, believing in the existence of God, I need to investigate those. I need to go back to square one, which we talked about earlier in Matthew, and talk about, okay, why do I believe what I believe? and settle my doubts and build the object of my faith again. Make sure I'm clear on that object. The second part of the contact with our real lives to apply um, this rebuke to our poor faith is to meditate, to think not just on the object of my faith, but on my subjective believing. What is it in me that's slipping from belief in that promise that I have that, that God will supply all of my needs through his riches and glory in Christ Jesus? That's Philippians 4.19. I believe the Bible. I believe Philippians 4.19 is inspired by God and true. Why am I having a hard time trusting it? It's probably because I am not really connecting with it. I am not putting my whole weight on it. 
I am not believing it. And in the words of uh, Martin uh, Lloyd-Jones in his great book on spiritual depression, he says, our problem often is that we listen to ourselves rather than talking to ourselves. We need to talk to ourselves on the strength of Philippians 4.19 and say, soul, that verse is inspired by God and true, and he will supply all of my needs. So stop your doubting and believe. So we investigate the object of our faith. We meditate to build up the subject who is believing, and then we supplicate. Okay, we pray, but I put supplicate because it rhymes and it just helps the preacher, and maybe it even helps you remember it, to uh, investigate, to meditate, and to supplicate. In other words, to pray, and that's the connection with Mark 9 again. This kind, kind comes only, out, only comes out by prayer. This kind only comes out by faith. It's the prayer of faith. They're both connected. It is not our faith that saves. It is our God that saves, and we access that God by praying in faith. Question number two comes from passage number two, verses 22 and 23. Hear the word of the Lord. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. Short little passage, two verses, but in these two verses, uh, I think we have a question. Now, we should have a question. We ought to ask this question. Why were they greatly distressed? Why were they greatly distressed? You may think, that's obvious why they were great. Did you not read that? I read it. I read the whole thing. Did you read the whole thing? Why were they greatly distressed? Okay, let's look again at the context. This is quicker. We're just looking at a much smaller thing here. Um, The context um, here is um, that they are gathering in Galilee. They're gathering in Galilee because this is where they're going to come back together again after the Mount of Transfiguration, after the incident with the father and his epileptic son. Now they've come back to Capernaum and uh, where Peter's house was, where Jesus' home base was, and that's the last time they'll be back to Capernaum because after the discourse of Matthew 18, which we'll look at in the fall, uh, Matthew chapter 19 says that um, they went on to Judea and to Jerusalem, that they're on their way for the last week of Jesus' life, and they've got to get to Jerusalem for that. So they're on a journey. The journey will take an undisclosed amount of time, but Um, They left Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. So that's what they're doing going forward here. So, but this context is they're in Capernaum um, and there are attacks. um, No, sorry, uh, I'm getting ahead of myself. I'm so sorry. Um, No, the context uh, of of this next little section, um, yeah, that they're gathering and they're, okay, good, I'm still with it, I'm still with it. I'm probably not with it, but I'm I'm getting there. All right, so they're gathering in Galilee. They're getting ready to go to Judea. And then Jesus says to them for the second time, he already said this um, before when they were in Caesarea Philippi, who do men say that I am? Who do you say that I am? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. I tell you, the Son of Man is going to be killed and he'll rise again. And Peter says, no, that's not going to happen to you. And he says, get behind me, Satan. Well, here he says it again, just to make sure they're completely clear on what's getting ready to happen here. Jesus says, the Son of Man, that's himself, about to be delivered into the hands of men or betrayed 
into the hands of men. And they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. So there's the context um, for the question. The question there in verse 23, um, why were they so distressed? And the answer is because of their partial faith. Partial faith. Poor faith, answer to the first question. Partial faith, answer to the second question. What do I mean by a partial faith? Let's look at the text. Look at verses 22 and 23, the end of verse 22. Um, I'll be delivered. Son of man's going to be delivered. The son of man will be killed. The son of man will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. Their distress is, it's the second time he said he's going to be handed over to people. He's going to be betrayed. Who's going to betray him? I mean, that's a frightening thought, a distressing thought. He's going to be killed. That's a distressing thought. We thought he was the Messiah, that he was the son of man of Daniel chapter 7, and he's going to be killed? But he said, and he will be raised on the third day. That's going to be a real death, so it's not going to be he swooned for just a little bit. No, he'll be three days in the tomb, but then he will be raised. Yours is a partial faith. Oh, you have little faith. You're stressed because of the death saying you should be overjoyed because of the resurrection saying why could they not grasp resurrection also same reason we can't why do we not uh, hang in there to that so let's move then from the context of the question and the content of the question to the contact of the question with our real lives today and let's see two points of contact first we better count the cost if we're going to follow jesus He's not always going to lead us into health and wealth. He's going to lead us into scary places where there's a cross. And he's even asking us to take up a cross and follow him. A cross is an implement of death. And it's going to be difficult. We will have trials. We will suffer. We will be persecuted. All of that Jesus is very clear about. So what then shall we do? Follow him. Follow him in faith. That in our future, there is not just persecution, not just difficulty and trial and tribulation, not even just death, but in his presence, there is life. That in Jesus, we know the resurrection. He was raised, and we too shall be raised if we are in him. So count the cost, but then keep following him. And then a second point of contact with our lives today. Um, I want you to believe the impossible, or is at least maybe the implausible. I can see Jesus being handed over to his enemies. I mean, they're after him. We knew that. They've been after him a long time, and they may prevail because they're powerful, and they could kill him. I can see all of that, but rising again on the third day, I have a hard time wrapping my mind around that. In the kingdom of God, nothing is impossible for the king, and Jesus who will rise from the dead, will also raise us from the dead. So yes, count the costs, but be prepared to believe not only the, the plausible, but also the implausible, even what is seemingly impossible. And that's the picture of, say to this mountain, be moved and it will be moved. Um, that, that's many other places in Scripture. In Isaiah, at the end of Isaiah, it talks about that in other Gospels. And in Paul himself, First Peter, I mean, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, uh, talks about if I have all faith so as to move mountains, but I don't have love, it's but a clanging cymbal and an empty gong. So 
Um, move mountains, that's great. And you could do it with just a little faith. A little faith would do that. But it needs to be a full faith and not just a partial faith, believing the bad news about what's coming up with Jesus and failing to grasp the good news, the resurrection news. There's a third question in these um, verses that we're reading today, and we'll find it in the passage beginning with verse 24 and, and extending until verse 27. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, Yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said, From others, Jesus said to him, So then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. All right, so this is the end of chapter 17. And here we find a question. The question is, why did they pay the temple tax? We don't want to get to that question quite yet. We need to understand the context. And the context is this. They're back in Capernaum. They're gathering in Galilee again. Capernaum is in Galilee. Capernaum was their home uh, base. It was Peter's home. And Jesus had made it his home. So we, I already mentioned all of that. So they're back in Capernaum. And then there are these collectors, these tax collectors. Not tax collectors for Rome. No tax collectors for the temple. And in Exodus chapter 30, there had been... A provision made that every year there would be a, a tax for adults between 20 and 50 years old. Well, that's the way it evolved by then. Originally, it was a tax for all. It was a one-time tax for those that were um, over the age of 20 or 20 and above, up until 50, and they paid this tax. And that was how we would keep up the tabernacle in Exodus, and then later the temple. And so that was adopted uh, also in the Herodian temple, the great expansion of the post-exilic temple in order to, to maintain it, to keep it going. And so these collectors are coming for a religious tax. They're, these are Jewish tax. They're collecting for Jewish purposes, not for Roman purposes. And they say, do you pay the two drachma tax, the tax mentioned in Exodus 30? It was for two drachmas. Now, often I understand uh, that the coinage then didn't have a two drachma. It wasn't in circulation, a two drachma coin. So you would take uh, an entire shekel, and a shekel was a four drachma coin or equivalent. Um, the Greek word is the Greek word for a silver coin that was worth one shekel or four drachma. So that's why Peter, I mean, Jesus says to Peter, pay for both of us with this one coin you're going to find. But uh, I'm getting ahead of myself. Uh, Peter's answer is what we need to see before the question comes up. The context is, uh, does your master pay this tax? Peter says yes. He just immediately assumes yes. He's under pressure. He just impulsively. Is that new for Peter to speak impulsively? I don't think so. So he impulsively says, uh, sure, of course he does. I'm sure he does. I mean, he's not guilty of any wrongdoing. So of course he does. Well, Jesus found out about it. How? Did Jesus overhear the conversation with the tax collectors? Did Jesus surmise it from looking out the window watching Peter have this conversation? Or did Jesus have it revealed to him by his Father, just as the Father or the Holy Spirit would reveal it to any of the prophets? Um, we don't know. Was it supernatural or was it natural? The means by which, in this instance, um, 
Jesus knew, but Jesus knew, and he approaches Peter first before Peter can come to him and ask him about the incident. He just says, uh, Peter, about that temple tax. And Peter must have been surprised, shocked even, like, what? what? Well, how do you know about that? You weren't there. And so uh, he asks, um, Jesus asks three questions here. He says, first, um, what do you think, Simon? Question number one. Question number two, for whom do the kings of the earth take toll or tax? From whom do they collect taxes? Question number three, do they collect them from their sons or from others? So he's given him multiple choice here. And Peter says, uh, well, no, not from the sons. They collect it from others, from the citizens of the kingdom to pay for the sons. And so Jesus says, so the sons are exempt, right? The sons are free. And Peter would go, yeah, I guess so. Okay, and then Jesus gives the answer to the question. So the question is not, does your master pay? But our question as we look at this text is, why does your master pay the temple tax? So that's the content of the question. And the content of the answer is, so as not to cause offense. I don't want to offend them, says Jesus. Now, Jesus was perfectly fine to offend the Pharisees and the scribes, the teachers of the law, back in Matthew chapter 15, when he excoriated them for their hold of the traditions of men in preference to the commandments of God. So he's willing to, to fight their traditions, and he doesn't care about offending them, but a lot of times he does care about offending them because he's come as a gracious messenger to seek and to save that which is lost, to save his people from their sins, and he, he wants to put up with all kinds of baloney in order to accomplish that. So he says, so as not to offend them, go and throw out a hook. Only time in the Gospels that they fish with a hook instead of with a net, but throw out a hook. First fish you catch, look in its mouth, you'll find the silver coin there and go pay your tax and mine from that. Wow. Why? Why um, did he pay the temple tax? And the answer was, so as not to offend. That makes contact with us in our real world living today as well. And I think, again, a couple of ways in which we get a contact, an application point. Um, the first um, of those contacts is make it your aim not to offend people around you. Whether they're weaker brothers, as Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter um, 6, 8, 9, a weaker brother, don't make that brother stumble, that sister stumble. No, you, you put up with it. You're, you're a bigger person than that. You should, you're more mature. You're older. You should be wiser. Don't offend anybody else. And so um, I hope that we'll, we'll all do that. We'll, we'll not um, offend. And nor will we be prickly and all thin-skinned and, and get offended all the time. That's not right. Then we ought not to be people who take offense easily. It ought to really be hard. In fact, it ought to take something that um, is in direct disobedience to God's word that would cause us to get our feathers ruffled and say, hey, we got to obey God rather than men. Uh, rather than human beings. No, um, we ought not to take offense easily. I, I don't like it when I see Christians quoted in the news, well, that offended me. I can't believe that they said that about Christians or about Jesus. Or I, I, that language offends me. That, that, that shows a disrespect for my faith. We've got to expect that. No, what we need to do is to be loving, gracious, merciful, just as Jesus was, he didn't insist on his right. I'm the son of God, the unique son of God. I shouldn't be paying the temple tax. Don't worry about it, Peter. Let's pay it anyway, because they don't see that yet. So we got to persistently 
and winsomely present this message till they will see it. As I said, that was uh, what um, Paul was doing in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, um, in verse um, 21, uh, verse 12, I think it is in 1 Corinthians 9, where he, he says, I'll do anything so that the gospel will be presented and be promoted and it won't be uh, offend. No one will take offense by it. And then 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 3, Paul makes another big point of that when he says, we take great pains. We do everything that we can so that the gospel will not be discredited. We are careful not to be a stumbling block, not to cause offense. That's the same thing. A scandalon is a, um, a stumbling block. And so this offense, I don't want to do anything to cause somebody to stumble, to get in the way of the gospel message. If they take offense over my delivery or over something stupid that I did, said, thought, you know, somehow it's come out, I apologize, be humble, put up with misunderstanding, put up with slander even, so that the gospel will come through. May we be more and more like that, that we don't have a proud faith. A poor faith is bad, as we found out from the man who cried out on behalf of his son, and the disciples couldn't heal him because they had a poor faith. A partial faith is not good. That only can go with what is seen and not go beyond to what is unseen. That only deal with the plausible, not deal with the implausible. No, we need a full faith, a robust faith. But a proud faith is also bad. I believe in Jesus and I have got the right answers and you need to come and bow before me and ask me for things. And just a frown on the face is communicating a proud and a haughty faith instead of a very humbly faith. Hey, don't have faith in me. I am a sinner. I am the chief of sinners, said Paul. I am one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. So that is the posture that we ought to adopt, not to have a proud faith, but to have a faith that is eager not to offend on trivial things, on non-essential matters, on things that aren't commanded in God's word. We flex. We have our own conviction before God, but we let others have their convictions before God. We don't major on the minors. We major on the majors. We make the gospel the issue. Jesus is the issue. We want you to know Jesus. And if I got in the way, if I said something, if I, oh, if what I said just then made you not see Jesus, I blew it big time. I'm so sorry. I am insensitive. Please forgive me. I am often proud and too talkative and say things I should have thought more about before I said, please forgive me. But don't, don't take it out on Jesus. So, we are very careful not to cause offense so that the gospel may not be discredited. And then one other thing here that we can learn from this strange passage about this fish and the thing, God can, he can provide your needs. Jesus will provide all of your needs as he has promised in not only Philippians 4.19, but Romans 8.32. Um, in Matthew chapter 6, we looked at the Sermon on the Mount. You know, why are you worried about food? Why are you worried about clothes? No, your heavenly Father knows what you need. He can provide, even if it's a silver coin in a fish's mouth on April the 15th at tax time. No, that's civil tax, not temple tax. But anyway, um, he, he can do it. He can go to whatever lengths he needs to go to. So trust him fully. And that's the message, I think, of these three incidents in Matthew 17. Learn to trust God with your full weight, leaning on him and trusting that chair to hold you up so that you are in perfect peace because your mind is stayed on him because you trust in him. 
what can I say? The kingdom of God extends not only to what is seen, but to what is unseen. Epilepsy was seen, the foam, the rigidity of the body, the convulsion, they saw all that. They may not have been able to see the demon behind it, and we in our telescopes and microscopes can't see the demons that inhabit this world either, but we trust that they're there with a malevolent demon above them all, Satan, our great enemy. But greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. The kingdom of heaven, faith, is what enables us to thrive, to get along. And it's a faith that has to go from the visible to the invisible. It's a faith that has to go from the plausible to the implausible, to resurrection. And a faith that has to extend all the way also from the principled, our rights, we demand our rights, and at times we do need to implore our rights. Paul appealed to Caesar. It was his right, and that was fine. That was good for him to do. But also to our sacrifices. He often didn't appeal to Caesar. He said, I'm not going to bring up that you all ought to be supporting me because I want to make the gospel free of charge. And so he would make a big deal of that. So not just rights, but sacrifices beyond principles, uh, principled life to a pragmatic approach as well so that we don't have a poor faith, but we have a rich and robust one. We don't have a partial faith, but we have a whole faith, a full faith. And we don't have a proud faith, but it's a very humble faith resting on God. Let's pray. Father, help me, help my brothers and my sisters who may be watching this, to latch on to one of these deficiencies of faith so that we might move from defective faith to effective faith by your grace at work in us by the Holy Spirit so that we take one of these points of contact with this ancient text in our current worlds and we make the application. Help us do it for your sake. Sure, for our sake too, but ultimately for your glory. We ask it through Jesus. Amen. All right. Thank you. We'll see Matthew 18 again in the fall.